This podcast is shareable. Shareable is the podcast fueled entirely by curiosity. Every episode features exciting guests who share valuable advice and insights, how-to guides, and practical takeaways. Join me as I explore the awe-inspiring stories about overcoming the odds, the secret formulas that gave each guest their unique superpower, and the moments that remind us of our shared humanity. Get ready to be excited, delighted, and possibly even astonished, because this podcast is shareable. Welcome back to Shareable. Today, I'm very excited to have uh, a guest that I've wanted to talk to for a very long time, although in a different phase of his career. Uh, so uh, we're going to have that conversation offline. Today, we're going to have a conversation with what he's doing now. Josh Burnoff, welcome to Shareable. I'm really excited to have you here. It's great to be here, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you. Good stuff. Good stuff. So for those who don't know who you are, what are a few of the most important things someone might need to know about you? All right. Well, important things to know about me, first of all, uh, I spent 20 years of my career as an analyst at Forrester Research. So that really is uh, where I made my name as sort of a visible person. Uh, that's where I wrote Groundswell, the, the uh, book cover you see over my shoulder that uh, changed how people thought about social media, sold 150,000 copies. Um, for the last eight years, I've been working with authors uh, since I left Forrester, and uh, that's that's my passion now. It's my career. Um, and I uh, worked on 50 different book projects that have made more than $20 million for their authors um, and uh, just published a book on how to build a better business book, which is sort of the compilation of those eight years of experience. Amazing. Amazing. So listeners, um, one, go get a copy of Groundswell. It's it's still not outdated. Like it's le- it's legit. I, I completely disagree with you. Uh, I love it. Don't buy a copy of Groundswell. Eh, it's it's it's, 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 it's got it's got an excellent se- it's got an excellent section in there on MySpace strategy. So oh uh, no, I just mean more the second. <laughs> I still think the social technographics ladder mm-hmm. as a concept of thinking about how people utilize technology mm-hmm. is still really interesting. Besides, yeah. you can get it used for a few bucks, probably maybe like ten bucks. <laughs> Gosh, okay. let him let him buy the book yet. Uh, work there. But let's okay. talk about uh, I'm really excited to talk to you about all this stuff because um, and, and what I was going to say also to listeners is like, Josh, you're the you're like legit the real deal. The people that you've worked with, we mm. run in similar circles. A lot of the same speakers and authors we both know. I know, you know, Jay Bayer really well. Uh, LGO, Laura Gassner-Otting, um, mm-hmm. both have been on uh, either or both of my various shows. And then also Phil Jones, who's just like an icon. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know you have like the goods of, of working with them. And then I also just want to say, and I know you're going to um, tease this at the end, but yeah. I'm just going to give it away at the beginning here that you, because I just downloaded it. You give away your book proposal, which is insane. Like nobody does that. <laughs> no, they don't. I've never seen one in my life, by the way. Yeah. Um, no, well, there's all this mystery about how to write a book proposal to sell a book. And so I wrote a proposal for my previous book, which was called writing without bullshit. Um, and, uh, I thought that that book sold, it did well. Why don't I let people get access to my proposal? So if you go to the download section of my website at burnoff.com, anybody can download a copy and see a book proposal, how it's structured, uh, one that was successful. Yeah, I've actually never seen one before, and I was surprised. Yeah. I opened it up and looked at it, and I was like, oh, well, it's a good thing I didn't actually go traditional when I published my book. 
Um, so I yeah, just it's a wrote, lot of work. It is a yeah. lot. Uh, yeah. to, even just to, uh, to, I did the hybrid publishing model, but even that yeah. is a tremendous amount of work, but yeah. to put the book proposal ahead of that, uh, uh, it's just insane to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, my, just released my book, the lovable leader back in January of last year, doing the audio book. Now I've been through a little bit of the process of what it is and my gosh, it is one, there's the writing. And then two, there's the whole promotional mm-hmm. side of things. And I know one of the things that you're really big on that I want us to spend some time on is talking about story. So there's so many different places to start, but before we get too deeply into it, Uh I I have to know, you know, you said you've pivoted into making your career about authors. What's the dent you wish to make in the universe? Like, what are you about at this point in your career and your life? What's your thing? What's my thing? Well, I want people with great ideas to be able to publish books and get the attention they deserve. And uh, you know, I can't make someone imaginative or creative, but there are so many people who are very good at that. And then they just get tangled up in all of the minutia of what it takes to write and what it takes to pitch and what it takes, you know, and all the different publishing models. And I just wanted to get all of the questions that I answer for authors out of the way, put it all in one place so that people can just read it in a book and be like, ah, oh, I see that's the right way to do things. All right. Well, let's start in at the top with probably the part that I think everybody begins with when they start with the idea, I want to write a book, which is Mm -hmm. the big idea, right? Like the big, I have an idea for a book. I want to write it. And, and, you know, I read a lot of books. I see a lot of the books that are coming out and I see so many of them. Like, I feel like this book has been written before. How Mm -hmm. does one go about coming up with a big, differentiated, unique, sellable uh, you know, magnetically attractable idea, like one that people want to read. Like, mm-hmm. how do you go about even starting that process? Well, I like to say that the for an idea to be worth doing a book on, it needs to have three qualities. It has to be big, that is important for the people in your audience. It has to be right. That means that you can actually prove that what you say is true. And that can just be because you have case studies to to back it up. But somehow that you're not just making it up and it has to be new. And that's the hard part to differentiate it. But there are so many ways to differentiate a book. Yes. You might have a completely new idea, but if you're writing a book on content marketing, maybe it's about content marketing for financial services or content marketing as a career for Gen Z people or uh, how AI will help with content marketing. So there's always some sort of a twist or a spin that allows you to to succeed. And you want to be able to say, I am producing the first book that whatever. So if it's the first book for Gen Z about content marketing, may not be the first content marketing book, but at least it's the first one that's just for them. Do you think, so um, I see that on on uh, in the movies, they've just recently decided to remake the phenomenal movie, White Men Can't Jump. And I sometimes feel like we're just running out of ideas and recycling old ones. And I guess I I, I appreciate the idea of something that's new or that's first. Yeah. But I'm wondering, sort of a la Ed Sheeran, there's only so many different ways you can arrange in G chord. Mm-hmm. When do we run out of something that is new outside of just our unique perspective on it or our unique stories about uh, it? I, if there's a good book out there on the topic that you want to write about and you don't have anything to add to it, Please don't write the book, okay? Uh, this is not fiction is different. We it might be fun to see it with different actors, but with nonfiction, you know, I don't want to see how to how to uh, win friends and influence people 
if that's the right book, then you don't really want to write that book. Um, but there's so many new things in the world now. You know, there's chat GPT, there's 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 uh augmented reality. And so surely whatever people are working on, they can come up with uh some insights that have not been shared before. Um and you know, where these ideas come from is just every day you work on things and you're like, oh, you know what? I noticed something that nobody ever noticed before. That's the beginning of an idea you can write a book about. So you work almost exclusively or do you work exclusively in nonfiction, right? I do work exclusively in nonfiction. Got it. I, I like to say, if people say, find out I'm an author, they say, do you write fiction? I say, not on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, I have a hard time reading fiction. Uh, and I actually didn't think I liked reading for a very long yeah. time until I discovered nonfiction books. And then I mm -hmm. became a voracious reader. Um, so I am, I'm a hundred percent in on the nonfiction world of things, mm -hmm. but you mentioned uh, that a lot of things begin in capturing those ideas with noticing things. Um, and I think that's the way a lot of fiction writers also mm -hmm. kind of go about things. They hear a piece of dialogue, they hear somebody talking, they kind of come up with an idea for a scene. Mm -hmm. um, and I know you, you talk a lot about the importance of story in nonfiction work, which I yeah. think might be surprising to some people who think like, oh, well, nonfiction is all facts and figures and databases and et cetera. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about maybe what that looks like in terms of uh, generating ideas uh, as it relates to using story to get your point across in a mm. unique and interesting way. Yeah. You know, I just think back when I was an analyst, um, I wrote a book proposal and sent it to an agent. It was about what I was an expert in at that time, which was the future of television. And he came back and said, I can't sell this. And I said, why not? There's some shocking changes happening in the television industry. And he said, look, books are made out of people and stories. There's no people in here and there's no stories in here. So nobody wants to read it. It had been written like a research report, which is what I was used to. And I'm like, yeah, ah, you know what? I can do that. Do you believe that to be true? That, 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 uh, not, not that it's made of that, that, that nobody wants to read it. Is that like, do you believe that? Yes. I think that, yes, no, you know, the statistics are interesting, but it's the individual stories that resonate with people. So if you're going to tell me about, uh, let's say, uh, people who want to be successful at podcasting. I want to hear the stories of some people who were successful at podcasting. And I want to hear some stories about people who tried it, found out something that didn't work, and then had some realization. Because that's how you you come up with the, the uh, insights that people remember. And here's a little trick which I learned, which is when you tell that little case study story, Whatever appears in the paragraph after that, people will believe if you say, so the lesson of this is whatever you say after that, people will believe. And in the absence of that, you have a very dry collection of facts that just is unlikely to sell and it's not likely to resonate. People won't remember it. So, so if you yes, tell a story and you crucial. wrap it up with the moral of this story is you could basically fill in almost any, almost anything there and, and people will will buy it so long as it at least connects in yes. some way they can draw that. Yes. Connect well, that. One would hope that you're moral and don't say, yes. you know, that that the uh, the ethical result of this story is that you can get away with murder. But but yes, if you make that connection, people will will follow your lead. All right. So let's dig into this because I'm going to I'm going to be I'm going to be very vulnerable with you right now mm -hmm. at this moment. The hardest part of writing my book was stories and, mm -hmm. and not because I don't think I have the capacity to tell a good story. I think mm -hmm. I can weave a tale as good as most on stage. I can. Mm -hmm. But when it came to 
illustrating the concepts in my book with story, I drew a complete blank. And I, mm. and I, and partly it's because when I listen to books, I listen to books at 3x speed and I listen to nonfiction books and I want to like learn the lesson and the framework and I want to move on. And stories to me are the part that I kind of like, okay, I don't I really care about Susie. Just get me to like, what's the lesson, right? That's me. So when it came time to write my book, it's like the first draft was a workbook, basically. It was very much kind of what mm. you described. Like it was like a research report. I was like, here's the frameworks to be a great leader, all the different things. And then my wife was the one who was like, well, maybe you could tell a story or two to illustrate that. My editor was like, maybe more than one or two, maybe a whole bunch. So there I am sitting trying to go through the whole process. So I guess my question for you is, is it the sort of thing where you should be collecting these along the way? Is it the sort of thing where you get through the big concept, you go back and you search for the stories? How, how does, basic big question, how the hell do you get stories into a book effectively? I, what you described a second ago is the wrong way to do it, which is to write the book and then look for stories. <laughs> and I, I help people <laughs> all the time. I'm like, all right, what case studies have you got? We get to the end and they have two case studies for a book that's that's 200 pages long. And I'm like, Oh man, you have a lot of work ahead of you. You need to be collecting those well ahead of time, but that's easy to do if you have the right mindset. So you have your own experience with clients or you have colleagues that tell about somebody and introduce you to somebody, or you read something in the news about somebody, or you read a, a vendor uses a case study and you're like, Oh, that's exactly the kind of thing. Let me call that guy up. Um, uh, or hypothetical stories where you're like, you know, well, imagine somebody in this situation, you know, you don't want to have 29 hypothetical stories, but a few are fine. Um, and so you need to be collecting those. I, I have a spreadsheet full of those. And then the question is, which of the things I'm trying to demonstrate do these people line up with? And and my my book for authors, there's 24 chapters. There are probably 30 author stories in there one per chapter plus a few extras uh, because people want to say, all right, what actually happens when you get the cover done? Or how do I make sure I don't inadvertently plagiarize? And you really want to read about somebody who had that problem and how they solved it. Do you have um, like a standard? So I, so I actually have a database mm -hmm. that I can clip to sort of like, uh, I know uh, another author, Mark Schaefer uses Evernote for everything. I use Notion. Mm -hmm. So I can clip, case studies, different things I find. And I have a thing called my story bank. And there's there's two things in there. It's two things in the database because I always forget. Mm -hmm. So where I want to go with that though is um, I think where I've struggled and I'm curious if you have any, maybe some stories about this, mm -hmm. but I find that when I take my own personal stories to illustrate a point, I have a tendency to discount the importance of that story. Mm -hmm. Like I say, oh, well, I mean, everybody does that. Or like, oh, but you know, I've done that like a thousand times. So like, so I have a tendency to kind of, not give it the worthiness of being placed in the book, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I just tend to think of it as like an everyday kind of occurrence. I'm looking for like a the real story, right? Like not the everyday thing where it happened. And I'm curious if that's something that you see kind of again and again with authors where they discount the stories that they actually have looking for a bigger, more important, more authoritative story. Well, in general, stories that the author tells about themselves are less credible. So you really want 80 or 90% of the stories in your book to be about other people, unless it's a memoir, of course. Well, I mean, what uh, about if it's like coaching other people or like clients of uh, yours or things like well, that? Well, uh, even there, you know, if you're like, you, what you don't want is if you have a book on coaching, you don't want a book that's like, that basically reads as here's 29 people that I coached and what I did with them. Because 
that's not credible. There's a whole world of other kinds of people out there in other kinds of situations. But if three of the examples in there are from your own personal experience, then that's credible. And, and your experience is just as valid as anybody else's, as long as it's not the only thing you talk about. So are you then best off kind of talking with other people, asking about those top sort of informational interviews, trying to gather stories from a variety of sources to kind of illustrate the points? That's exactly the right way to do it. Wow. I wish I had um, known this a few years ago. Thanks, Josh. Where were you then? <laughs> I I hadn't written it down yet. Oh, well, thankfully for my next book, I, I will have uh, I will have a process ready. Um, all right. So on the, you know, moving out of the topic of story, mm. there's a couple other things that I'm kind of burning to know about from the side of books. Promotion being probably the the thorn in the side. Mm. Um, we all get busy with a thousand things. You put, I put five years into writing my book. It took me only 28 days, but it took me five years to find those 28 days to write it. And then mm. the editing process, et cetera. So I write this book. I'm very proud of yeah. it, uh, mostly. And then I put it out into the world and I go, okay, well, I did a two-day book launch event and I put a bunch of social media posts out <laughs> and it'd be really great if I sold 150,000 copies like Groundswell, <laughs> but I didn't. Um, what, what, how does one promote a book and, and how much has that changed in the last few years? Uh, well, what you experienced is typical. People don't put the energy into promotion that they put into the creation. And the result is that books that ought to sell don't. This idea that they'll find it if it's good, nah, that's baloney. Um, so you need to do a lot of planning. Now, the good news is that in most book production processes, there is a period of three or four or five months between when the manuscript is quote-unquote done and when the book comes out. And you can take that time and be like, ooh, finally I get to re relax. Or that's when you do the, the promotion planning. Um and I talk about the five elements of promotion that that go into your plan. Uh, it's easy to remember, P-Q-R-S-T. P is positioning. What kind of a book is it and who is it for? Q is the question that you're going to answer. R is reach and S is spread. So these are the things that allow you to, to recruit people, get get more people to hear about it, be on podcasts, get, on, get it covered in the media, get on television. Um, and create things that people will share. Um, and the T is timing. And that's the most important thing is that you set everything up so that it all happens in a time period of a month before and a month after when the book publishes, because that way people who hear about it will hear about it over and over and over again. And they're like the third or fourth time they're like, you know what, maybe I should get this thing. Is there, um, so as a podcaster, I have a lot of people come on and yeah. talk about their books. I also, when I, after I had my book uh, come yeah. out, I went and I did a lot of podcasts. Do you think that there's um, sort of a bell curve of some sort or like an optimal um, amount of um, exposure? Or do you think it's kind of just the more the better? Because there's some people yeah. that they go out and they do a hundred or 200 different shows and it's like, okay, but like you're literally everywhere and you're saying the same thing uh, everywhere. And like, uh, is that uh, too much? Uh, you know, I was going to say you can't do too much, but a hundred is too much. <laughs> so, so yes. And you want some variety that mm -hmm. the, the, it gets to the reach questions. So if everyone's listening to the same, you know, the people you're reaching are also listening to the same seven podcasts. Yeah. There's only so much that's going to happen if you're on all seven of those podcasts. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think 
it's a question of yield. I mean, how much energy can you put into it? What unique things do you have to say and how are you going to say them? And, you know, I mean, to be as frank as I can about it, um, I'm on multiple podcasts, but I research people. I look at what's interesting to you and your audience. And that's what I talk about on your podcast. And I'm not going to be the same as I am on some other podcast that I'm doing with somebody else who's got a different audience and a different aspect and a different way of looking at the world. Yeah. Well, to that point, then, uh, let me ask you a very specifically shareable question. Um, when I began this podcast, I really became super interested in people and technology and the intersection between those two things mm -hmm. and how they shape our lives and our careers. Mm -hmm. So here you are at this point in your career. And I know in, in at least in one way how technology has shaped the, the path of your career. Mm -hmm. Tell me about how technology or people kind of in some way uh, shifted your course and led you to this with books and authors. Like, mm -hmm. how did that happen? What are the, what got you here? What were the, mm -hmm. what were the different things that led us to this moment? Yeah. So I'm going to give you the warp speed version of my career because it's sort of interesting. Yeah. Um, I was trained as a mathematician. I was in the PhD program in mathematics at MIT. And three years into that, I was like, oh my God, I don't like this. <laughs> so, so I took an entry level job in the software industry doing software documentation back when there used to be manuals for things. Um, and what I learned was that I was much more interested in creating, you know, real things as opposed to some academic thing that that's out there that nobody knows about. So I spent 14 years in the startups, uh, software startups. And then, uh, when I got, I, one of the, I kept looking for new things. It was always new technology. Uh, at the time, at the end of, of my software, business i was like oh cd-rom is the new thing that'll give you an idea how long ago it was so i became a cd-rom developer and then the company laid me off because they were like nobody really wants this and forrester hired me because i had worked on new technology and i was a good writer and that that then i spent 20 years as an analyst and as an analyst your job is to identify new technologies and make predictions about what they're going to do to business which was hugely interesting to me because that's what excited me is like oh what's this new thing how is this going to change the world people need to know about that you're answering questions that that nobody knows the answer to um, and you're wrong sometimes because that's the way it is when you answer the questions nobody knows the answer to now at the end of that i said i've always wanted to write a book i wrote that that groundswell book while i was at forrester research and then i'm like okay now I love books, and that's what shifted me onto the path I'm on now. So that leading edge of technology where the unknown happens has always been a piece of what I do. And here I am now, you know, uh, in a home office, connected across the internet, talking to a, a webcam. Uh, I still love books, but content now is a huge thing because of new technology. Right. Sorry so about the long. No, 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 no. That was amazing. <laughs> I, the, the only problem with it is that I have three threads I want to pull on, yeah. and I also still want to talk to you a little bit about the turning a book, 
like the, the sort of the aftermath of the book, the book is mm -hmm. part of like coach and speaker and all the different things and how mm -hmm. those play. And I want to make sure we get time for that. But you, there are a couple of things you said in there that I just want to like tug on. Um, so one is, is you talked about making predictions about things that haven't happened yet. I'm curious about your win loss record on that, just as a small question. <laughs> um, but the second thing is, is you talked about the technology piece there. That part became really clear. But what I always found interesting about Groundswell and about the work that you were doing in that was that it was the intersection of people and technology. It was the intersection of behaviors mm -hmm. driven by technological advancements and how that was shaping society and how that was shaping how we interacted mm -hmm. with each other and how it changed the way that we would work and all of these things that were very deeply connected to people and how it would affect us. And I'm interested to know more about, so you talked about mathematics and you talked about mm -hmm. technology and I'm interested, you know, you, you mentioned Charlene Lee, your co-author mm -hmm. with Groundswell, and I'm, I'd, I'd imagine that's going to be one person that's very important in the story, but I'm also curious about other people that may have had some sort of an impact on, you know, so you wrote a book, sure, but you also have worked with so many different authors mm -hmm. and you've worked with so many people and seen probably successes and failures. And I'm curious if there's any person or story that sticks out in your mind of something that you were kind of like, this is a thing I want to do more of, like mm -hmm. something that really, it lit you up in a way that made you say like, I got to follow this path a little further. Hmm. Uh, well, I, uh, this is, I, you know, in, in my first four or five months at Forrester, there were 65 people in the company. The CEO was a guy named George Colony, really smart guy. Um, and I had some setbacks and I was sitting there, uh, six months in thinking I'm a failure. I'm going to wash out here. It's too bad. This is a great job. Um, and they had these awards that they gave out. Uh, and one of them was the Creativity Award. And I'm sitting there in a funk. And they announced the Creativity Award, and it was me. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not creative. <laughs> what do you mean? I'm a failure. But they saw something in me, and I was like, you know what? If you think I'm creative, then I'm going to not hold back. I'm just going to be as creative as I possibly can. And that really was the beginning of success there. I made a lot of wrong predictions. I predicted HDTV would fail. <laughs> okay. That's bold in retrospect. <laughs> yes. I, I predicted that uh, interactive television would be a $25 billion business in five years before, uh, after I made the prediction. And that prediction was off by $25 billion. Hmm. So, so, but I did predict that, that the television schedule would go away and we'd be watching TV on our own uh, schedules, which is exactly what has happened. Although they're and trying to bring it back with the schedule. They did it with yes. Ted Lasso. I was so yeah. mad. Yes. <laughs> and, and uh, groundswell, I think the prediction that social media would not be some trivial thing, but would be crucially important and an important part of business. Yeah. You know, it really was. Yeah. Uh, you, you got close so, to the target on that one. Yeah. So, uh, I certainly have to give credit to George Colony for having faith in me um, and making it possible for Charlene and me to do a book there. Um, I certainly have to give credit to Charlene, who had the the faith to work with me uh, and create that book. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I, I, one other person I might bring up or uh, people is uh, um, uh, uh, Harley Manning and Kerry Bodine. They wrote a book on uh on customer experience when they were at Forrester. I was their editor. 
And that book really blew my mind because they're like, wow, here's a complete systematic way to look at how customer experience affects business. The book's called Outside In, and it's still successful now, like 10 years later. So, so uh, you know, these people all had a huge impact on me. That's amazing. That story sparks joy for me. Like that mm-hmm. is such a good story. And it actually validates, you know, in my book, I, I talk about one of the things that a leader's job is to stand mm-hmm. for people against themselves sometimes because we're our own ro- worst critics. And sometimes we have to stand for our people to see the greatness that's inside of them. And I think that's a really excellent example right there of somebody being your cheerleader when you needed it. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, seeing the 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 fruits of, of, small gestures like that sometimes seemingly small gestures like that um you never know the ripple effects that can make so i i appreciate you sharing that story because that's a that's an that's a good one man it's really good mm-hmm. um i want to make sure we have time to talk about the uh the kind of turning your book into a a bigger platform sort mm-hmm. of thing because i i think so many people that's why they write the book right so you had um you in some of the things that we were going back and forth prior to you coming on mm-hmm. you'd mentioned that a lot of authors they put a lot of money in promoting their book they put a lot of time and energy, and even if it doesn't yield million dollar returns or whatever, almost most authors say that it was worth it. And it's funny because I look at my book, and even though it's not the resounding success monetarily in book sales mm-hmm. that I would have in my most fantastic dreams, I wouldn't take it back even if I only had sold one copy because just to do it, the effort of doing it and putting it out there and getting my ideas solidified was worth it. But I think a lot of people, when I talk to them about writing a book, they ask me about my experience, this and that. They're, they want it to be kind of a cornerstone of a platform to get on bigger stages, to have a coaching program, to start master classes or group coaching or whatever. And it's hard to do that at all, let alone also write a book. So I'm curious what insights you can provide that might give people a sense of how it could be more within reach to actually do something like that. Um, and and I think you've got some really good examples of people you've worked with to kind of illustrate um, you know, people who've done it effectively. Well, uh, one of the things in my book is a survey of nonfiction authors, and 87% of them, the ones that were published, said that they they were happy that they published a book, and over 70% said that they plan to do another book within the next 10 years. So people are generally happy with it. Um, and once it's out there, you can monetize it in whatever way is most appropriate for you. Uh, it's traditional for people to start a speaking career. Um, but there's certainly a lot of consulting leads. There are, uh, people who do workshops. I can't resist mentioning here that, um, after my, my book about corporate writing came out and this was like six years later and that book was not that successful, but, uh, they brought me in to do a writing workshop at Netflix and that turned into like a dozen different writing workshops at Netflix and made a huge amount of money from that one company all done from my desk in the, in the pandemic. Um, That's so I I also think people underestimate how like getting like two more clients or five more clients could sometimes be massive. Yeah. I, I gotta tell you, so I'll just give you an example here. This, this book for authors, I was sitting here looking at how much my PR firm is charging me. And I'm like, Oh, geez that's more than I expected. And, you know, now I got to come up with this. And then a woman connected with me and said, I read your book. I really need your help. We need to write a book proposal. Can you help me? And I'm like, wow, I just made back the entire PR budget in one lead. (laughs) So, so really, really, um, 
uh, it's not a question of reaching a million people. If you reach a million people with your book, you are incredibly successful. You're making lots of money from speeches and from uh, from book sales. But if you reach 3,000 people and they are the right 3,000 people, you can make money all sorts of ways from that. So really, it's just a question of being the known expert on the thing that people need help with. So is it then that if we rewind the tape and go 20 minutes mm. in the past and we're talking about you know, finding your unique angle and finding your, I'm the only of this and, and then taking that into your promotion process to getting in front of the right people that to a certain extent, if you've handled those things properly, you're kind of setting yourself up for the, on the other side to just go into whatever that thing is that you're trying to do. There's no kind of, that's exactly what it is. Did I just figure it out? Oh my God. Well, well, what I'm saying (laughs) is, okay. So Look, look at all of the people who want to be a business author in the world. If 10% of them buy my book, that's not that many people. But if if 3% of the ones who buy my book call me and ask for my help, I'm rolling in dough, man. So, yeah. so it really is a question of just reaching the people who really need what it is that you do. And that's where the differentiation comes in because if, if what you do is SEO, there's thousands of people who do SEO. But if what you do is uh, SEO for the insurance industry, well, you could be the guy who is who's best known for that and do very well at that. It's outstanding. Well, I feel I I mean, again, as a first time author and I plan to write several more, hopefully. Um, mm-hmm. But I really appreciate that you wrote this book because I'm going to very much go through it with a fine tooth comb before my next one. But I appreciate you coming on and sharing some of those insights. And I encourage everybody, if you're thinking of writing a book, uh, Josh clearly knows what the hell he's doing. And hopefully that illustrated um, at least through this conversation. Uh, and you've got a bunch of resources on your site, um, which I encourage people to go and get. Um, is there anything you want to let people know before we move into uh, just a couple quick shareables of things that you'd recommend? I. Uh- no, just uh, burnoff.com is the site. And uh, if you go to the download section, you can get that free book proposal. Um, but I blog every weekday. Yeah, because I'm a masochist. I saw so, that. So, uh, I so saw it, even old... in the heading, it says daily blog. And I was like, Jesus, man. <laughs> so <laughs> I I take weekends off. But but if you, if you sign up, you'll be getting continual insights. Um, there's always something happening in the publishing business. And every time I learn something, I'm like, oh, wow, this person failed in a way that I have never seen before. I have to write about that. So that's the next day's blog post. I love it. <laughs> I I went through a very short period where I blogged every day and it was some of the hardest uh, it, uh, time in my life uh, for a variety of reasons, of course. Um, well, listen, I want to do um, some shareables, just a couple of things that you'd recommend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I got a few more things after that and we'll wrap it up. But um, so these are just quick things that sort of like what we do on social media, right? We share things mm-hmm. that we recommend. So um, what's something you would recommend that everyone read? And uh, in this case, don't be self-promotional. Give something that other people yeah. that other people have written that you would recommend. So I have to say, I got a chance to work on this book. Uh, I was the editor of the book. It's called Watch and Learn. It's by Mitch Lowe. He was a co-founder of Netflix. He was the uh, originator of Redbox. And he also was like the principal of this uh, movie, what's it called, uh, movie pass thing that crashed and burned horribly. And the reason is, it's such a gonzo story. I I was like amazed at the stuff he shared. 
So I'm not suggesting that you read this because of the lessons in it. I'm suggesting you read it because it's just such a weird story of, of uh, success from a guy who was a high school dropout. It's just a lot of fun. I love that. And it's also, uh, that seems like something quasi unexpected about something that people feel like they know a lot about and see a different side of it. So I appreciate that one. Uh, What's something everyone should go and listen to? It could be music. It could be a podcast. It could be an audio book. It could be anything, but it has to be something you can listen to. Um, I'm very interested in the the new directions that audio books are going. And uh, uh, Malcolm Gladwell in particular with Pushkin Industries is pushing the, the envelope on this. His audiobook with Paul Simon of Simon and Garfunkel is not like anything you've ever seen before or heard before because it's got a bunch of music in it and he talks about where Simon's influences come from and you hear Simon's voice, the actual interview. So if you want to get your your mind expanded on what an audiobook can be, uh, it's called um, uh, Miracle and Wonder. That's the name of the audiobook. That's awesome. I, I, uh, I too have been really, um, interested in some of the things that have been going on with audiobooks. Um, I, we probably, you probably know Ron tight. Um, his book mm-hmm. yeah. Think, do say, I absolutely mm-hmm. love just the little embellishments and the humorous bits in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Brant Man- Manzoir has the book, uh, black sheep. And in his mm-hmm. also a lot of like rock and roll and different things. And it just made the listening experience so like entertaining and different. Yeah. So I appreciate that recommendation. I'm listening to, um, the Anderson Cooper book right now about the Vanderbilts and his mm-hmm. narration is just really fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. friend of mine, Lou diamond recommend that, um, uh, something people should watch. What's something you'd recommend that people should, uh, watch. It could be a movie. It could be Ted talk. It could be a TV show, anything you want. Uh, I have to say, I, my wife and I suddenly became interested in Korean dramas. They're the best. <laughs> which oh which my are God. All, okay. So you understand I they're on Netflix. Them. Yes. And there's there's this drama. It's called Crash Landing on You. Love it. It's about it's got like succession and element. There's a woman who's in one of these powerful families, and then she ends up uh uh hang gliding and ends up in North Korea. And it is action, it's got romance, it's got intrigue, it's it's it is the best the best it's television so show good. i have ever seen and nobody's heard of it so it's so, so good did you know yeah. that they're actually married um the, the, uh yes i did read that yeah. yes that's amazing yeah um, if you want to trade korean or chinese dramas my wife and i we watch them all the time oh, and i got some really good ones for you oh yes okay all right that's terrific i'll give you just one right now and this is for the listeners yeah. too if you haven't watched the glory the glory is a story of revenge and it is luscious. It's like watching John wick. It's incredible. Okay. So good. Um, all right. What last one is, uh, what's something that you've learned, something you've learned that you think is really interesting that you think people should know about. It could be, it's like the Wikipedia. I just thought of a thing and I Googled it question. Well, this is going to sound a little weird. Um, I mentioned that I was trained as a mathematician um, well, I recently got treated for prostate cancer, um, and this is a radiation treatment that's a precision treatment. And what I learned was that the same mathematics that's used in an MRI where they or a, uh, a CAT scan where they shoot a bunch of rays from different angles and then develop a volumetric model of what's going on inside your body, that 
That's what they do in reverse when they give you the radiation treatments. They start with a volumetric model and then figure out what intensity to do at different angles to be able to, to get that to work. And I, and what I mentioned to the doctor, I'm like, oh, that's a, like a CAT scan in reverse. He's like, yes, but no one else ever understood that. <laughs> so that's like, why. Do they do I'm a like, CAT scan first to get the volumetric? Yes. So yes, they do it one right. way and then they do it the other way. And they, they reverse it. Um, and this awesome. is how they make sure that the radiation goes into the parts of your body where it needs to go and that you're not irradiating anything else. It's a fantastic technology. And I'm very grateful because uh, I'm hopeful that this means I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to be successfully treated. Yeah. <laughs> well, as am I, um, that's, that is a wild, wild, uh, thing to know. Um, okay. So, uh, I have one more thing I want to ask you about, but before we do that, yeah. this is the shameless self-promotion, uh, same shameless self-promotion part of the show. So tell people where they can get in touch with you, learn more about you, find you leading the way, follow you on right. social, any, any of the links that you want to give that you didn't previously mention, feel free right now to shamelessly self-promote. I, I will shamefully self-promote. So this is the new book, Build a Better Business Book, a comprehensive guide for authors, everything you need to know. If you want to find out how to get this, go to burnoff.com slash books, and you can get it direct from the publisher, which is the fastest way to get it, or you can get it from uh, as an ebook from Amazon. Um, and uh, really, burnoff.com, that's where you want to get a hold of me. That's that's uh that's where I communicate with people. So that's all I have to promote, really. Awesome. All right. So end of the show uh, at Shareable, we like to close out with gratitude. Uh, so mm -hmm. the way we do that is um, my book was called The Lovable Leader. So mm -hmm. when I say that, it usually maps on people kind of think of someone. So I want you to think of someone who uh, exhibited care from your past or in your present, who someone you trusted and who in the midst of setting big goals for you made you feel safe along the way. And then I'm going to mute myself and I'm going to fade into the background. And if you're comfortable with it, I'd like you to take this moment to speak directly to them, thank them for their leadership, tell them what they did and how it made an impact on you. Okay. Well, I think the person that I want to thank is my father. Uh, my father uh, helped me to understand what it meant to be both honest and ambitious. And uh, all of the success I've had in my career is really going in the in the the uh, directions that he showed me. Um, he died last April. And uh, really, as a life of uh, of as an exemplar of of what it's like to be a human being, he was terrific. And uh, he also showed what it was like to be a wonderful husband. And I've tried to, to do that as well. So thanks, Dad. So tell me, what was most valuable or useful for you in this episode? Send me a message or hit me up on social media. I'm easy to find, but there's links in the show notes just to make it easy. Seriously, I'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed this episode, there's a couple things you could do, starting with subscribing to the show. And after that, head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate the show five stars and leave a review. Consider sharing this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. Or just buy me a latte or an old-fashioned by hitting up that tip jar. If you're looking for a good book to read, may I suggest The Lovable Leader, which covers how to build great teams with trust, respect, and kindness. It's built exclusively for brand new managers, and it's a handbook that will serve you well in your journey of leadership. Just search for Lovable Leader wherever books are sold online. And finally, if you're interested in working with me or checking out any of my other projects, go to jgibbard.com. That link, as well as every other link mentioned, will be found in the show notes. Stay safe, be kind, and seriously, share this episode with someone. I'll see you on the next episode of Shareable. 
Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm.